just a few moments. James chapter 4. Well, you know, here we are less than 24 hours away from 2024. Uh, and a new year presents the opportunity um, for fresh starts. In fact, it's uh, where the whole idea of a New Year's resolution comes from. The fact that January 1st can be a good start date, whether it's a new goal that you want to set for yourself or a new habit you want to establish, an old habit you want to get rid of, whatever the case may be. Now, for many of us, we've had that experience of the thrill and the excitement of January 1st turning into a faded and distant dream by February. But I have known some success stories. If um, my friend has continued to be successful over the last two years, I know a man back in Bloomington at Grace Church who will read through the Bible for the 30-plus consecutive year in 2024 based on a resolution that he made back in the late 80s in order to read through the Bible that year, and he has just continued that year after year. But, you know, putting specific resolutions aside, this is a good time uh, to reflect on the year ahead. A moment to give some consideration to just what some of the things God might have in store for us as we go through 2024 in these next 12 months. But more importantly than considering specific things or general things that might happen, it's just to put ourselves in a place spiritually and emotionally where we're ready to walk with the Lord regardless of what 2024 is going to have in store, regardless of the situations that we may find ourselves dealing with or the opportunities that God is going to present that we can take advantage of. You know, you and I may not know what's going to happen this year, but we know the God who does. And we know that God holds us, and he holds 2024 in his hand. As I prayed about and thought through this morning and the fact that it's the last day of the year, the last Sunday of the year, I asked God, what passage would be good for this morning? You know, what would be a a good passage that would give some insights and how do we approach a new year? How do we approach the future? And the Lord took me back to the book of James here in chapter 4. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 13 through 17. And so let's read those verses now together. Verse uh, 13 of James chapter 4. And James writes, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money, while you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. And what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, And all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You know, as we move through these verses, James is going to be pointing out two things that we have as humans a tendency to do whenever we're thinking about the future. When you look at the flip side of these two things that we're going to look at in the passage here, What you will find is a God-focused alternative. 
And so that's kind of what James is doing primarily here, is he's saying, well, well, here's your human tendency, but you can shift and you can have this God-focused alternative in how you face the future as well. One of those tendencies is the fact that you and I assume that we can know and control the future. Now, we oftentimes won't blatantly say that, but we sort of act that way in the way that we approach a new year, in the way you approach a future. Like, we know what's going to happen, and we can control it in some fashion. The God-focused alternative to that is trusting God's knowledge, wisdom, and sovereignty instead. The second tendency that we have, human tendency that we have, is to assume credit for what God is doing in our lives. The God-focused alternative that James is going to give us is having a spirit of gratitude and praise instead. Then, after we look at the two contrasts, we're going to close our time by seeing that James presents a choice, and the choice will be pretty evident, and the choice is actually pretty simple. And then one key action that you and I can take as we start into a new year in order to have this God-focused view of the future rather than our human tendencies to the future. So the question that James is going to be addressing this morning for us is, how do you approach life when the future is uncertain as a believer? And he's going to answer by telling us, well, trust in God's graciousness and wisdom and not in your human plans and efforts. Because when you really stop to think about it, especially as believers, it's pretty foolish to trust in my own wisdom when I have the opportunity to trust in God's instead. So as we get started here, let's uh, get some background because to better understand the passage, we need to know who James specifically is talking to and what is the real issue that he's dealing with in these verses. Then we'll be able to apply the verses to our own lives, taking it from the first century up to the 21st century. So the primary people that James is talking about here are actually the merchants of the time, the businessmen and, yes, businesswomen who traded, bought, and sold goods. The biblical example of that would be Lydia. Lydia was a merchant. She purchased and sold expensive cloth and clothing. And so she was one of these merchants. Now, it was a very small percentage of the people in the general population of of Rome or the Roman Empire. If you broke down the Roman Empire in the first century, approximately 8% of the people were in the wealthy, powerful class, the the politicians and the wealthy landowners, about 8%. 90% of the people in the empire were working poor or slaves. That only left 2% of the population of what we would consider middle class. The definition of middle class is that we can make enough money beyond our basic need that we can begin to accumulate it. And we can do things like buy land. That's kind of the definition of middle class. We're not wealthy, but we have more than we need, and so we can accumulate some things. Only 2% of the people in the empire were in that middle class, and the majority of them were these merchants that James is talking about. Now, merchants had to do a lot of traveling. They had to travel different places to secure the goods. There was no Amazon. So you had to go to where that good was or where that product was, and there you would purchase it. And then you had to travel from city to city, 
where you sold those things at the city markets, and that's how you did business. And so like many businesses, you had to lay out your capital to buy your, to buy your goods, and then you made that money back when you could sell it. There were no banks. There were no real loans the way we would know it now. There was no, you got your personal thing and you get your business so you could bankrupt yourself business-wise but not bankrupt yourself personally. So with that in mind, you, be it, to be a successful merchant, you worked long hours and you worked really hard and even then you weren't always successful. There are a number of things that could happen where you could lose it all. And when that did take place, you went from being a part of that merchant class back to being part of the working poor. Or worse yet, you were sold into slavery to pay your debts. So there was a lot of incentive to work really hard if you were a merchant and be able to stay in that class. um, Also, as a group, these merchants were not always fully trustworthy. They often would cut corners when producing their goods, or they would use unbalanced scales when they would weigh the goods out so that they could make a higher profit. Nothing new in the first century. A thousand years before this, Solomon had written in Proverbs 20:23 that the Lord detests differing weights and dishonest scales do not please him. So it was a problem in the Old Testament Jewish culture as well. Now, there was, this was a generalization. There were a lot of merchants that were good, honest people of integrity, but as a whole, they sort of had this generalized view of, you better be careful. <laughs> they might try to rip you off. Context indicates that James is addressing believers here. And since few members of the rich and powerful 8% ever became a Christian, These merchants were the wealthiest people in the church. And as we saw in other places in the book of James, they they carry a lot of influence and power within the church. And the context also indicates that these are folks that are struggling to have a God-focused approach to their business and their future and their planning. Because the primary issue that James is addressing here is not the fact that we should not make plans. That's not it. In fact, Proverbs 16.9 says that in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Making plans, being wise and intentional in life, it's essential, and in fact, it's biblical. The primary issue is that these people are making plans without any regard to God. They're making their plans by leaning on their own understanding and wisdom instead of seeking God's. They are trusting in their own wisdom and their own human efforts instead of God's. And so they're focused on being successful and making money rather than seeking to grow in their relationship with the Lord. The majority of their time and energy is focused on their business and not on Jesus. They're developing a sense of self-reliance. May, my efforts are what will make me successful, is the thought here. And God does call us to be very diligent at the work that he gives us to do, but he doesn't call us to be self-reliant. Their success, it's caused them also to become prideful, to take credit for their successes, instead of seeing God as the one who's giving them the opportunities to be successful. And so, 
they're making plans, but they're, they're focused on their business and not the Lord. They're self-reliant, not reliant on the Lord. They're prideful, not grateful. That's the issue here. And even though they're believers, they have continued to give themselves into these two human tendencies that we're going to look at. And James is saying, you know what, you, you, you need to change your focus. You need to change, and you begin to see life through this, this God-focused alternative as you look at the future. And the first thing he is going to address is this idea of making plans. Then what attitude do we have as we do make plans for the future, as we do look out over a new year and start thinking about some of the things that we want to be intentional about as we go into the year? First of all, our human tendency is to assume that we can know and control the future. James brings that out in verse 13. He says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and we'll make money. James says, first of all, listen. This means, and we've talked about this before when we were in the book of James, this word means, now stop what you're doing, come close and pay, close, and pay attention. You know, stop what you're doing, come close, lean in, and pay attention. This is important. It's sort of like the mom that goes walking out the back door into the backyard and says to one or all of her children, stop playing and come here and listen. You know, it's like, you know, you don't want the distraction. You don't want your child to try to play and listen at the same time. You don't want to yell to them across the yard. So you say, stop what you're doing. Come here because I want you to pay attention to what I got to say. That's what James is saying here. You know, stop for a moment, clear your mind, listen to what I got to say because this is important. And this phrase, you who say, is really important in understanding this issue that James is talking about here. That phrase means to say something based upon reason and logic. It's saying something that you've come to a conclusion on based upon careful thought. These people are saying the things that are in this verse like they really know the future and outcome. What they have is this attitude of, I've got this figured out, so you know what? We're good. I know what to do. And the evidence, as James walks them through this, says that they are making this assumption. We can, control, we can know and control the future. Because they, first of all, they say, well, we know when to start this plan. It's going to be today or tomorrow. We know where to go. It's going to be this city or that city. We know the best timetable. We're going to spend exactly one year there. And we know what we need to do. We need to carry on our business. And we are confident in the success of our plan because we're going to make money. The thing is, they're saying these things with the utmost confidence in their own wisdom and plans, and that's what's going to bring success. There's no mention of God here. That's the thing. There's no mention of God here. They've made their plans and they just assume they've got the wisdom and they've got the know-how and they can put in the effort to be successful. The God-focused alternative is to trust in God's knowledge, wisdom, and sovereignty. His knowledge, his wisdom, and his sovereignty. In verse 14, James points this out to them. He says, 
why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The problem with trusting ourselves and our wisdom and our knowledge and our ability to control the future is that we've got a very narrow frame of reference. That's James's point. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You, you can only see what is here today. And your perspective is limited. You're just a vapor. So you've got this limited perspective. And you've got this limited view. But God... His perspective and view is very different. God's knowledge is complete because his perspective is eternal. We're going to see in just a moment. God God knows exactly how long you're going to live. He knows every day of your life. He's mapped it out. He's got it written in a book, the psalmist says. And he knows exactly how he has created you and what he has created you to do. He knows exactly where your life fits in his broader plan. And we don't. And so, first of all, our knowledge is limited. Our perspective is limited. God's knowledge is complete and his perspective is eternal. God's wisdom is perfect. And therefore, it will bring us understanding. God's wisdom will bring us understanding. And God's sovereignty is always in control. We can rest in his hand as he takes us through this next year. We go to God's word to get his knowledge. We get on our knees and pray to receive God's wisdom. And then we get up and trusting ourselves to the Lord because we know he is sovereign. That's why we should prayerfully bring God into our planning at the beginning of the process, not at the end. (laughs) Do you ever find yourself making all of your plans and then saying, okay, God, would you bless this? (laughs) Anybody? You know, as we look at what James is saying here, it's bring God into the first part of it. Bring God into the beginning of it. Bring God into it in a way in which you say, Lord, I acknowledge your knowledge, your wisdom, and your sovereign control, and so you guide us in the planning. And then we will trust you to give us the steps forward. That's the point James is making here. Do not think you can know and control the future, but instead, place yourself and trust yourself to God in his knowledge and his wisdom and his sovereignty. So that's the first choice. Then he takes us to what happens when we begin to experience success. When life, some of the things in life do are turning out well. Our human tendency is to assume credit for the success of our lives. He brings this out in verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. The word boast here literally means to be loud-mouthed. <laughs> it's to raise your voice up because you want everybody to see and hear what you are saying. And so that's really what boasting is. We don't necessarily do it through volume, but we just make sure that people kind of know. You know, sometimes we can be subtle about it, but we just want them to know this is what's happened. This is what has been accomplished. 
Now, in the scripture, actually the majority of time that this word that's translated boast is used, it's actually referring to boasting about God. Over 30 times in the New Testament, we're told in one way or another, we should boast about God. In Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We say to people, here is my relationship with God. Here's what Jesus Christ has done for me. This is what God is doing in my life. And I boast about God's grace and hope and what God has done in my life. And so we boast about God and what he's doing for us and what he's done for us and the confidence we have and what he will do for us in the future. But the word boast is also found in the New Testament where we're boasting about ourselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul is talking about our salvation and about how we are growing in our relationship with Christ. That's the context of the verse. And he goes on to write to the Corinthians, For who has made you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? In other words, what he is saying is, why are you boasting as if you did these things for yourself? Why are you boasting like you somehow earned your own salvation? How, why are you boasting in the changes that God has brought in your life as if it's through your own self-effort? And so in chapter 5, you've got that perspective. We boast in what God has done. 1 Corinthians 4 is what it looks like when we boast as if we've done it for ourselves. And he says that these are arrogant schemes. The, the, the idea here is a prideful self-confidence. It indicates that we're boasting about themselves here, or they are boasting about themselves here and what they've accomplished. It comes out in phrases like, I've worked hard for this, or maybe see what I've accomplished this year. Or perhaps it's, I guess I was right. I, I told you I knew what to do. You know, it comes out in any different ways that we might talk about something that we've been successful in. But we're giving the idea that we've accomplished it by our own wisdom and efforts. And we leave God out. And he says, all such boasting is evil. And that's that's a more powerful statement, too, than what you originally see it in. Because in the Jewish eyes especially, this word evil was used in the New Testament in reference to Satan. One of the places that you find that is in Matthew 13, verses 36 and 37, where Jesus has been, taught, has been teaching the parable of, of, the, of the sowing of the wheat and the tares. And, you know, they grow up together in the field, and eventually God will sort them out. And in explaining the parable, Jesus says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. Same word. In reference to Satan. See, Satan's initial sin 
was a prideful determination to claim God's glory for himself. And so when you and I boast about things that God has done for us as if we accomplished them on our own, then we're emulating Satan. We are, we, we are in the same sin as Satan. We are taking glory that belongs to God and we're trying to bring it onto ourselves. And James brings this, uses this word so that we know, you know what, this is really serious. This is something you really need to address. The God-focused alternative is gratitude and praise. It's gratitude and praise. When we experience a success in life, we just go to our knees, we lift our hands, and we boast about God with gratitude and praise for what he's done. A great example of this is Daniel in Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the, the Babylonian king, had a dream, we're told in that chapter, and he gathered all the wise men of Babylon in the palace to come interpret it for him. And problem is that he refused to tell him what the dream was. He says, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Sort of direct. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. And unfortunately for the wise men, they had no idea what the dream was, much less how to interpret it. And so the king issues the command to have all of his advisors rounded up and to put them to death. Now Daniel had been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon as a teenager. And if you're familiar with the story in Daniel chapter 1, through the work of God in his life, Daniel is made a member of the king's court. And he's an up-and-coming member of the king's court. But he was not among the wise men who had been summoned into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. So when Daniel finds out what the king has said and that he, along with the others, are going to be put to death, he says, hey, give me time and I will interpret the king's dream. And we are told that God gave him a vision that night and revealed the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. And this was Daniel's response. It says, Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. That's an attitude of praise and gratitude. And Daniel just lifts all that up to the Lord. And then he appears to the king, and that attitude continues. The king, and Nebuchadnezzar, asked Daniel, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. 
Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. And then Daniel proceeded to reveal and interpret the king's dream. I've always sat back and I've gone, man, Daniel's still a fairly young man, maybe in his 20s. He's standing before the king. He's about ready to make a name for himself, man. He's about to do what nobody else in the kingdom can do. And when the king says, can you interpret the dream? Daniel says, no, I can't. But I know a God who can and just gives all that glory back to God. As we live out our lives and as the Lord gives us successes in all the ways that we experience that, the God-focused alternative to taking on ourselves the credit for what we have done is to give praise and gratitude back to the Lord. Daniel stands as a great example In fact, Daniel is a great example for us, I think, in this culture, period, because he was a highly successful, very high-level government official under three different kings reigning over two different pagan, ungodly empires. And yet, he served those kings effectively and faithfully, while at the same time maintaining a close walk with God that enabled him to do things in a way that honored and glorified the Lord. But he displayed a heart of gratitude and praise to the Lord for all of these successes of his life. And so James brings us to the place where he says, now, now you've got a choice to make. Now you've got a choice to make. He says in verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. James is saying, you know what? I've pointed out these two human tendencies. I've pointed out this human tendency to assume that you can know and control the future. I have pointed out this human tendency to assume credit for the successes in your life. And now you're accountable. You are now accountable to move away from those tendencies and instead line yourself up with these God-focused alternatives. Trust in God and His knowledge, wisdom, and sovereignty. His word, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we receive of wisdom through prayer, and then entrusting ourselves, knowing that we're held in the sovereign hand of God. And then have an attitude of gratitude and praise for everything that God gives you in this life, which is everything we have. And James just flat out, just puts it, flat lines it for us. If you fail to do this, if you fail to make this choice, now, for you, that's sin. That's disobedience. But he gives us the key action that we need to take. And that's prayer. In verse 15, he says, Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. To say if it is the Lord's will is to, say, is to pray for God's will. It's to pray for God's will. It's to remember that Jesus taught us to pray with these words. He said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's praying for a kingdom perspective. It's praying to live out the words of Jesus later in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, 
So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Praying for God's will is to pray for this kingdom, God's righteousness perspective in life. And then we pray for God's plan. And to trust God as we walk in it one step at a time. He says, if it is God's will, we will live and do this or that. We will live is a reminder that God knows our days, like I said earlier, and he knows the plan he has for us day by day, and he connects all the dots and so that they all come together into the plan. You and I never see more than a couple of dots at a time, and I don't, have you ever looked at a situation or some particular thing that's coming on and you're saying, how in the world does this figure into what God's doing in my life? You know, again, we got that little narrow perspective. All we can see are those two or three dots. Dot, God is out there where he sees every dot of our lives. And he says, that connects to here, to here, to here, to here, to here, to here, to here. And when all of that is done, your will, your life will have fulfilled exactly what I had for you. And so we pray for God's will. And then we pray for God to reveal to us the days he has written in the book. And what has he written? What is he calling us to do? And there's this sense of resting in God and allowing him to reveal his plan just one step at a time. We do prayerfully make our plans. We do prayerfully determine the timing and the direction and the goals. We do then trust God to guide the steps forward, but... As God blesses our efforts, then we give the praise to him with an attitude of gratitude. Prayerfully plan, totally depend. That's really what James is saying. Prayerfully plan, and then totally depend. Just want to share a final word to us as a church family. This is so much here for each one of us as God leads us into this new year. But I I just want to share something. Last year at this time, I delivered a message on the last Sunday of the year, and as a part of that message, I encouraged us as a church family to be praying for God to guide us as we took the steps through this transition process, as we took the steps through this intentional interim process and God answered those prayers. God gave us insight of where Grace Bible Church is today and how we got here. He gave us insight on the strengths of this church that God is going to build on. Some of the areas that he wants to strengthen. And he began to give glimpses of the opportunities he has for us as a church family in the years ahead. And then he gave discernment, discernment on the direction that this God has for this church going into this new season of ministry. He gave us this mission that we as a church family are going to be sharing Jesus. We're going to be growing together, and we're going to be impacting our world. 
He gave us a vision. He gave us little snapshots of what that could look like as we move ahead and as we fulfill that mission. And then he gave us some initial steps to be able to start moving in that direction. And those are steps that we've started to take and steps we will continue to make in the weeks and months ahead. God did all of that, and we do praise him for it. As we get ready for 2024, now it's time to pray over this final step. The step of God revealing the new senior pastor, long-term pastor that he has for Grace Bible Church. We've already, we're already well into that step, by the way, in the sense of we started in September. We have received resumes. There's interviews and some things that we have shared with you, and I will let the deacons share any, you know, in the future of, of where things are going. But it is absolutely essential that we continue to trust God for the steps and to show that trust through prayer. And that God will bring the new pastor and family to us in his time. And just like God answered our prayers last year, God's going to answer this one too. And so I call us together daily, ask God for the wisdom for the deacons and for this church as a congregation to know every step God has that will culminate in a new pastor and his family being here with you and together moving into that future that God has you for. So that next year, as you're looking into 2025, we can anticipate praising the Lord for that new pastor and family who are here and getting established and together moving forward with you. The God who has done everything in this church in the past and the God who is doing everything in this church right now is the God who will do that next. And we will stand and say, praise the Lord, he has done this. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pause and we do thank you for all you do, all you have done, all you continue to do, will do in our lives. And God, I just boil all this down this morning. May we be children of yours and may we be a church family that does indeed prayerfully plan but then totally depend so that you God lead us with your knowledge your wisdom and your sovereign hand I pray for each one here each one that's a part of this church family and I pray for our church family as a whole that we will experience you in the fullness of all you have for us in the year to come. And it's in Jesus that we pray. Amen.